You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And today, Neil, I'd love to go back to a conversation that we were having a couple of episodes ago about frequentists and Bayesians and their generation's long fight to rule Westeros. <laughs> it's, it is like Westeros. It's like, you know, we're on book five. What's going to happen next? Uh, we don't know. We have to write a new TV series and we don't even have the book to run from. So... What what we were mainly talking about last time was the sort of history, and I do think history is super important. You know, I can't remember dates, as we'll know. I think I said that Bayes was 1776 or something, or, you know, which was some other... I can't even remember what happened in 1776. I'm not good at dates, but I do love the themes of history and the rhythm of history and how it leads on to the next mm -hmm. thing. And so a lot of the context of this Bayesian frequentist debate in machine learning, I think, comes from that history. What I wanted to do was sort of talk a little bit about in machine learning where I think we are in terms of what's really going on. Because I think a lot of that history, it's interesting contextually, but perhaps less important for what we do. I don't think we really split into Bayesians and frequentists in machine learning at all. Mm. Not in the classical defined sense. And I should say, I'm about 10 years out of date because now we're all back to being connectionists and just doing neural networks. But for, but for the 10-year <laughs> history up to now, I think that what went on across the period where people became very interested in graphical models and convex optimization and kernel machines, which was the period when I entered the field in 96, when I was came in because of neural networks and then I was... You know, turned into someone who was interested in variational methods, Gaussian processes, probabilistic methods, a bit of graphical models. The way I would characterize certainly that period is characterize it as a split into one group that was interested in optimization of objective functions, which is, I think, what people think of as the frequentist, because they would then tend to prove properties about their solution, which is similar to a frequentist type idea. And another group were doing probabilistic modeling. Now, I want to, in a future episode, come back to what I think of as the difference between model and algorithm. But, but let's just talk about uh, as a sort of entity and why is that different. And these were thought of as the Bayesians. It's not really Bayesian to model something probabilistically. That anyone's allowed to do that. You don't have to have the license or the mm -hmm. police can't turn up or whatever. Um, philosophical <laughs> difference, which is when you formulate the problem you're interested in as an optimization problem, you often looks like you're trying to formulate the thing you're interested in directly. We talk about a cost function. So, so there's an implication even that there's sort of a monetary value associated with what you're doing. Um, so I'm writing down the cost I'll pay if I get things wrong. That seems very sensible. That's sort of the direct thing. That's what the frequentist type group that I don't really think of exactly as frequentists would tend to do. Formulate is an optimization problem. And then they would typically relax it. Classic example of this is L1 regularization. So L1 regularization or lasso as it sort of became known in the stats community, but it sort of around a bit before that as well, sparse modeling. What people were really interested in doing is counting the number of parameters that were non-zero and then regularizing according to that. Now, that unfortunately leads to a very non-convex difficult optimization problem. And L1 is very often justified by what's called a relaxation of that optimization problem. So great researchers like Francis Bach, a lot of what they'll do is sort of say, well, I really want to do this one, but I can relax to this interesting optimization problem that's L1. I, then that's convex. Convexity of optimization is very important. So convex, there's one solution. You can prove things mm -hmm. about that solution, and you may well attempt to prove how it relates to the thing you really wanted to optimize. So you have some sort of thing that you wanted to optimize, and you relax away to something else. And that's a really great philosophy. And a lot of the people, if you look at support vector machine work, it's, it's formulated broadly in that way, not always even relaxing the optimization, but sometimes doing so. But getting a 
good convex optimization and then proving lots of things mathematically about it. The Bayesian, the apparent Bayesian approach, which I would say is not Bayesian, it's just probabilistic modeling, is quite different because there's the main doctrine of the Church of Bayes is that you can separate problems of inference and decision. So inference, I mean in terms of Bayesian inference, mm -hmm. we talked about that a few weeks ago, not the statistical or inferencing in neural networks. Mm -hmm. Statistical inference. So the process of inference being build your probabilistic model, um, understand what's going on in the world, put, put probability distributions over all the variables you're interested in, and now, once you've done all that, um, you can then ask questions of the decision by interrogating the probabilities. And what is known to be true is if your probabilistic model is correct, you can separate these and you will still perform optimally. You know, lots of computer science is about separating a challenge into distinct parts, and this is a lovely separation. I can think about the system mm -hmm. as much, or I can sit there in my, you know, smoking a pipe or whatever I do to think, <laughs> and then building my model and then um and then later on people can turn up and i interrogate my model and it will give all the answers you know it'd be a wonderful great ai the challenge there is the mm. these challenges of intractability in integration of the probabilistic model in defining the model the sort of models you can dream up very few of them are actually uh, tractable so so you end up with an enormous amount of work on sampling mm -hmm. and approximate inference but then people forget that actually your model probably wasn't correct and it's wrong to have separated the pros. So that's the doctrine. The doctrine is uh, the doctrine of model correctness. I see a lot of very naive stuff. I Sorry, I shouldn't say this. I'll get myself in trouble. Written by quite sophisticated authors about this because I don't think they've really thought about this. You know, that actually that is the issue with that type of modeling. It's not so much Bayesian itself. That's the issue of separating model and decision. That's certainly characteristic of, of who we talk about as Bayesians in machine learning. Now, like many, many things, neither of these is absolutely correct because you can come up with circumstances where both strategies fail. So, of course, you're in a French bakery of and you're course. selling croissants. You need to decide how many croissants you're going to put in the oven. Mm -hmm. And you've got to make a prediction of how many you're going to sell that day. Now, for some weird reason, you pay a quadratic cost. I've never understood how you can ever pay a quadratic cost. Like, you know, sorry, you sell out of croissants and people come in and want to buy yes. them and you don't have Last them. That's opportunity. an opportunity cost. Yes. It seems linear. It seems linear in the amount of money you make. But okay, let's say it's quadratic for some reason. That makes the math easier later. That might be the reason. Um, or you have too many croissants and they spoil and now you've wasted. This is actually an asymmetric cost, interestingly. Mm -hmm. You can actually define these costs very well. But so whatever you make it, linear, quadratic, whatever you can now write down the function you want to optimize in terms of your previous data because you can see exactly how much you pay so you can sort of fit that model in that way and that's what these optimization orientated people would advocate doing but there's something really odd about that because if the demand for the croissants is what we might call let's say you did use the quadratic loss mm -hmm. the demand is is heavy tailed mm -hmm. so if the demand is by heavy tailed it means like day to day you can get quite extreme values so like one day it's seven the next day it's, it suddenly drops to like zero because it rains yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. and then the next day it's eight and then it's nine and then it's like 50 because there's a concert in town or and they're all waking up and they're come and pass. Just talk about the loss function. We haven't talked about the prediction function. That's one of my favorite dualities. There's two functions, the prediction function, the loss function. So you've got the prediction function right, we're assuming. But if you've got the loss function wrong and you fit it by what's so-called empirical risk minimization, minimizing this cost, then you will not, you will get overly affected. You'll have a quadratic error on these large values and you'll get overly affected by them. You'll be drawn to them. What you're much better off doing is 
fitting the probabilistic model that understands that loss and ignores the. So if you look at probabilistic model, the in inverted commas loss, and this is a sloppy thing people do that call mm -hmm. it loss, the log likelihood that you fit will not cause a very high cost for these outliers. So you're better fitting mm -hmm. off the probabilistic model. So the Bayesian's right. So ha ha, good old Bayesian, or Bayesian, what we call the Bayesian. The probabilistic model is right. They don't need to be necessarily doing this in a Bayesian way for, for this to be true. But having said that, that's if the model is correct. If on the other hand, um, you can certainly construct situations, let's take a sort of situation with very high asymmetric costs. So cancer versus not cancer. And you know that the diagnosis of cancer, an incorrect clearing of a clean health when the patient has cancer is very, very high cost. But perhaps sending them on for further tests is low cost. That's the classic sort of asymmetric cost. Bayesian trying to fit a linear model to some data like that, where the data itself is not linear. You have to sort of pick to this in your head, you've got perhaps two clusters of non-cancer, but in between them you've got a cancer cluster. So as I go from mm -hmm. left to right, I have non-cancer, then I have cancer, then I have non-cancer. Now a Bayesian can't fit a linear model to this. If you fit this probabilistically, you won't get a good result. Your linear model will just go straight through the cancer bit and, ha and classify half of them as cancer, half of them as non-cancer. You can't fix this up by right. your decision making later because you had the wrong model. And, and this is really, you always have the wrong model. You never have the right model unless you generated the data from that model, which is why we often do that to show, to show nice <laughs> results. But the, the, if someone's actually taking cost into account, what they could do is they could put the decision boundary to either the right or the left of the cancer cluster, correctly classify all the positive cancer patients as having cancer and half of the non-cancer patients as having cancer. Pay the cost for sending those half a testing, but save all the people in the middle if you're taking into account this asymmetric loss when you're fitting your model. So two aspects to this. One, it's vital to consider your data generating process if you make croissants. But mm -hmm. then two, if you're resolving cancer, it's vital to consider, or, or you will get better performance if you consider um, the cost of your uh, misclassification at model fitting time. So neither of these camps is entirely correct. And they, they can both learn from mm. each other and once again live, live in perfect harmony. And again, we get quite blinkered because we're looking at just the small problems just in front of us. But I think if you're going to be effective as a data scientist or a deployer of machine learning, and we talk about consumers of machine learning versus generators of machine learning, you want to know these broad lessons. Mm -hmm. You want to be like, oh my God, I'm a Bayesian, I have to dislike all that other stuff there, or oh, I do empirical risk minimization. You, you have to understand the weaknesses and strengths. We basically don't have the right answer, right? We don't know the way to do everything. You need to know when to deploy each one, what the weaknesses of each one are, and what the advantages of each one are. Well, if you want to learn even more about Bayesian's frequentists and croissant making, you can visit our website, thetalkingmachines.com. So our question this week on Talking Machines is about ethics. Working as a data scientist, I get to work on some pretty cool projects. However, one recent project proposal I wrote made me question where the boundaries between what we are capable of doing with data science and what is ethical to do with data science are. We are quite concerned about what AI and computers might do if they get smart enough to trick us. However, I don't think enough people like to discuss what people can do with AI to manipulate others. So. Neil, this is sort of the, the question that I think about a lot. What are the ethical implications right now that we need to be thinking about and working towards changing? 
I think that's a great question. And I really am a great believer in all of us working in this area needing to think about this a lot and more. And, and why? Well, because any technology that is disruptive could, could take things in good ways or bad ways, and you want to make it as good as possible. But in particular, with, with this sort of technology that we're looking at, the tools to fix things will also come from the same community. So we have to be very mm. conscious of that. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking in particular of areas like fairness, accountability, transparency, learning, FATML that Hannah Wallach uh, is one of the figures behind many other people, privacy, aware learning. One of the thoughts in my head is that if the machine learning tools, it's, well, it seems to me, I should say, it may not be totally true, that one of the few technologies that is now forcing the accumulation of data into one place is machine learning. It's mm. other technologies, such as database technologies, no longer do that. They can be distributed. And the last remaining thing that causes people to need to bring data together is to do the machine learning side. And I just have a sense that once the data is together in one place, then, then that's perhaps where things get a little bit more dangerous. So if we're the community that's forcing that in order to gain all these valuable insights out, then I think the onus is on us also to come up with ways of dealing with that. Now, having said that, you know, the potential benefits are extraordinary. And the ethical questions are very complex because there's some form of social contract, I suspect, with a lot of these deployments uh, that we're doing, but what society wants is evolving and what people want is evolving. I think the thing that worries me the most is when people think that they've got a single-shot solution for these problems. Mm. I think that I, that's the thing I'm very suspicious of. It, it seems to me with, with any previous movement, with any previous sort of large social change, people, and this may not be a large social change, but if we look across revolutions in the past, the worst thing that happened was when people thought, oh, I've got really the solution. I know exactly how we do politics now, and, and I just have to implement it widely, <laughs> you know, regardless of what other people think. Right, um, right. That, that seems almost all forms of extremism seem to have some sense of that mm -hmm. to them. And there's also a, there's a sense now that, oh, we can achieve this utopia if only we just work out the correct sense of morals or the right. correct sets of ethics, and we'll just have to deploy them across the world and everyone will live in harmony. Well, what if there isn't, and I'm not an expert on philosophy, but I think one of the things Kant has this categorical imperative, which is says there is some underlying correct set of models, and these, if that were true, then these things are true, but then all these odd things come out of it, right, which you right. certainly wouldn't want to apply across society. So it feels to me quite clear that you don't have a universal set of ideals that would apply for everyone. These are personal and subjective. And a very interesting thing as we deploy machine learning technologies is that Michael Littman at the Future of AI meeting, I attended a great meeting hosted by NYU over a year ago now, mm -hmm. and he talked about as the big baby problem. His concern was, and I have a lot of sympathy for this point of view, the big fear is not some sort of artificial sentient beast that destroys us all. It's the fact that we can now deploy very rapidly things that affect many millions or billions of people's lives at one go. And if you do that clumsily, the sort of big right. baby wandering around New York is not actively trying to do anything. You know, I mean, when I say big here, I'm talking size of Empire State Building or something. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes, Baby Kong. Baby Kong. He's not like King Kong where it's... At, well, I don't know. King, I, I haven't seen the movie recently. or not the classic. <laughs> I don't know King Kong's motivation. So I shouldn't go there. One should never discuss motivations if you do. But, but in this envisaged baby or, or Godzilla, the baby isn't actively trying to destroy humanity. It, it's just sort of large, clumsy right. stumbling around. 
And I thought that image from Michael was a very apt one for the, the sort of thing that we can blunder into very easily today. We have that capability. We have the capability to deploy at very, very large scale machine learning solutions. And the onus must be on those that are closest to it. I mean, there are issues about how quickly regulation can catch up if regulation mm -hmm. is indeed appropriate. So the onus has to be on the technologists, I, I believe. And at least some people, and what I'm very pleased to see is, is many people in the community do talk about it. And one of the things that's very exciting is the extent to which there's engagement between people from the legal profession, people from philosophy, like the NYU mm -hmm. Symposium, but also at NIPS, there have been many symposia on this area, social impacts of machine learning. I, I think that that's very encouraging to see because I don't believe that any one of those communities I mean, last week we were talking about geographical, how geography affects diversity of thinking. Well, these are intellectual islands, law and computer science, you know. I find it fascinating when you discuss law and computer science together. A legal expert is actually trying to codify systems of behavior. And so you're trying to implement a code. A computer expert, computer scientist, is trying to implement code on a computer. So you think, well, this is the same thing. Right. They're trying to implement systems, so it's the same. But it's totally different because the computer scientist is trying to pin everything down extremely precisely, whereas the legal expert who's trying to codify in law systems of behavior is trying to leave in flexibility for, I mean, I, I perceive good laws last for a long time because there's an amount of flexibility perhaps in the language that allows things to evolve over time as society changes. Now, if we're going to codify law and ethics in our machine learning of today, then, then we've done it. It's rigid. Mm -hmm. uh, we put mm -hmm. it in the baby. You know, I don't know. Now it's not a baby. I don't know. It's a philosophy <laughs> professor or something. <laughs> Huge the, the, philosophy or, professors wrecking or, New York. I mean, that, that seems potentially very problematic. It, mm -hmm. it strikes me that what's lovely about humanity is the diversity of approaches people have. Mm -hmm. Okay, people comment on everyone else's behaviors and whatever. But the one thing you really want is diversity of approach. And, but the one thing that we're starting to see is very large-scale uh, deployment of approaches, which necessarily are the same because yeah. they're computer code that has been widely distributed. To be fair, I don't lose a great deal of sleep over this, but there's many things you can worry about in the world. But I think it is something we should all be actively thinking about. One of the questions around this that has always fascinated me, especially with regards to how fast we're developing these things and we're deploying them, or how fast the community is developing these tools and deploying them and using them, which I think is incredibly necessary, but regulation and law have generally always been reactive to situations. Something has to happen before something is done about it. Is there any sort of thinking that can be done that's proactive, or does that close doors that we haven't even passed through yet? It's a very good question. I, I think I'm not an expert on law, but I thought a bit about this and sort of tried to think about how previous technologies were handled by regulation. I mean, it particularly, in, so living in Sheffield for a long time, an industrial area in Manchester to the west, the, these are areas that experienced, you know, firsthand the first wave in the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. and, you look at the disruption to people that occurred at the time and then and, and some of the responses. But on the legal side, two things I thought about going back before then, you look at the printing press, which is a similarly disruptive technology. And of course, up until the introduction of the printing press, copyright wasn't really very important because a monk right. used to sit there in a chamber for like five years copying out <laughs> the Bible, spending like three days on the letter G for God or something like that. 
I wasn't there, but you get the sense in which the value of writing the story was not as great as the value of copying it down. The, the mm -hmm. amount of labor in the copying of the story, the creative process was therefore undervalued, or maybe it's overvalued today. And then you look at what's going on now, well, that's being taken to the, you know, we can copy anything immediately. We don't even need printing presses. So copyright laws, how did they come about? When did they come about? I'm not entirely sure on the history of that, but if you look at then later patents, Patents about intellectual property, capability to copy an idea and start mm -hmm. manufacturing. A lot of this is about where is the value? Who added the value? Where's the credit gone? With patents, they were an evolution of something called a letters patent, which was a granting of a monopoly from, I think, a member of the royal family. King could grant you monopoly with a letters patent. And then so they took this, this legislation and they evolved it to apply for technology that here's your idea. And now I'm going to give you this letters patent to give you the right to own that idea because you were the first to come up with it. I think that what we should look at is existing legal mechanisms for starting. I'm a great believer that it's difficult to proactively regulate innovation because it's potentially stifling. But at the same time, you have to deal with the concerns. So I think law will typically lag. But what it's very because of this fact that the codification is flexible not tight like in computer science what you'll see is law that was initially there with one intent will evolve to take care of another as copyright did for software I, I have doubts about whether that worked particularly well or didn't and certainly the open source movement has done wonderful things and that's almost like trying to get rid of the copyright but it'll take a while to work out i suspect the proactive just i'm not sure maybe there are great examples maybe the listeners know of good examples of proactive legislation but the future is really really difficult to envisage i mean sometimes people come up with examples oh someone did look and they said it was like this and you know. but actually it's they don't talk about all the examples of where people didn't get it right trying to set law for the present actually is pretty hard to encourage the right forms of behavior that's why we have a lot of lawyers around doing it trying to set law to the future that just seems extremely difficult I mean, there's some certain principles you can worry about. I worry a lot about privacy, individual privacy. Mm -hmm. I think that's mm -hmm. something that should always be precious to us. And you wonder about giving back control of individuals to their data or something like that. I think things like that, general principles you can think about. But whether you can legislate. I, I, um, I once wrote something uh, on an op-ed which was suggesting that the way you do it is something more like what we would call um, the highway code in the UK uh, you have it in the states it's called no the, i don't uh, know what that is it's the book you read before you take your driver you do a driver's oh, ed book. yes so in the book it says things and one of the things it says there's this difference between you must and you should so it mm. advises you like it says you should i think for cycling there's one of the things it says something like you should ride no more than two abreast so you can ride two abreast but you should no ride no more that means it's not illegal for you to ride they can't like arrest you or put you in prison or fine you for being free yeah, for being three. But in the case of a civil liability case, then oh. the responsibility will fall upon you for breaking the shoulds. So the should is not legal code. It's sort of best practice. And, but then the must is law. And, but then the highway code evolves, like they're doing a new version for autonomous vehicles. Hmm. And I think that's an interesting way. You have a, it's not quite a living document, but you have a document. It's not a wiki. <laughs> <laughs> But you have a sort of document Not everyone where there's can edit it. some debate, there's some group who worry about it. And like one time there was a red flag law, right, about the highways. But actually, you know, so there's an interesting case I wrote about where effectively the red flag law was slowing up steam traction engine. Someone overtook it and the steam traction engine turned into the carriage and uh, two people were killed in the carriage. Yeah. 
Right, so it's one of those, oh, it seems a great idea, we'll just keep them going slow, then we'll be fine. Well, no, actually, it's better to have mirrors and signaling and all these other things because you know, the going slow didn't help there because it was holding up the horse and carriage and it tried to overtake. Right. So, so these are unperceived consequences of the obvious correct law. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't help anyone. didn't help the lad that the was carriage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it didn't really help the steam traction engine trying to move its coal around. This was in Sheffield, actually, uh, down a hill. You know, so I think, you, you know, obviously that law was removed and changed. And I'm not, you know, I'm a cyclist. So, you know, I would rather things were more biased towards cycles and would move back towards cycles. But you have that capability. It's negotiation. And I think that, you know, I don't know, some form of evolving legislation like that seems to me important not like the oh we should have a new you know magna carta for the internet or something like this because actually what people expect out of the internet now is very different today from what it was 15 years ago you know oh yeah and if you had made the magna carta for the internet 15 years ago you'd have all sorts of terrible growing pains as it becomes something different yeah, what people, yeah. And I think these things stick around a long time, right? You know, I think the 1850s or 60s, the law about the red flag, and I think they got rid of it in, I don't know, 30 years later, something oh like that. Oh, my God, wow. So, you know, the consequences of your thinking, of your proactive legislation. But it's hard. And, and but one interesting thing is, I think what's, what's clever about having lots of different countries is they will try different things, and some will work well, and some will work less well. And of course, they'll copy from each other. Again, you need a diversity of approaches, again, I, mm-hmm. I feel. Well, I think we're seeing with the emergence of groups like the Partnership on AI and other philosophical, I don't know what I think of as, as think tank groups in this area, it's good to see people thinking formally about this. And I think that's really the only first step that we can take. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. I worry. I mean, I always want I want people thinking informally. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I just formal thinking just I don't know. You know, if you say formal thinking, it feels entrenched. Mm. I almost want people to be talking, chatting, understanding each other. And but maybe at some point it needs to be formal, I suppose. It can't all be done in pubs. (laughs) (laughs) if only it could that would be so great when it always is but the problem is you can't remember it the next day that's Uh, the problem the catch 22 of thinking in pubs if you've got a question for talking machines email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at tlkngmchns Our guest on this episode of Talking Machines is Ernest Mabaze, lecturer at the School of Computing at Makere University in Kampala, Uganda. We began the interview with the same question we ask everyone, which is, how did you get where you are? Uh, so I did engineering in undergraduate. I, I did engineering in Makere University, and then after that, at that time, there was no course in computer science. We only had uh, uh, what, what are called flat courses, so you did computer science and math. Some context, Makere University is this main university in Uganda, and it's the most significant is in the capital. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, so Makere ranks, I think, third in Africa right now. Uh, and along so with it was in this sort of odd thing with Nairobi, and what are the other ones? Kigali, these campuses, the University of London had these campuses in the capitals, and now these are all the separate universities. Which do you, so they're, they're quite old. They're sort of yeah, yeah, Makere is really, really, really old. 90, 97 years, I think, or yeah. a little bit more. So anyway, so at the time I joined university, I, I wanted to do computing, but there was no... So the closest thing to computing was a, a bachelor's course in electrical engineering. So I did that, and then after that, by the time I finished, there was a master's in computer science. So this was 1993, I think. 
And so after that, I did uh, a master's in computer science, and then I joined, luckily I joined an NGO that was doing uh, innovations in ICT for health. And uh, after that, I naturally, well, maybe not naturally, but I went back to the university to do research and uh, PhD in the Netherlands, and then I came back, PhD was in machine learning. And then by that time, luckily, the ecosystem in Macquarie University was ripe for sort of doing research in machine learning. We had John who had just flown in and he had really good ideas and so took That's off a, from There's there. an interesting story there, isn't there? Because there's Barry Amiibo who I've never met but is oh. the sort of visionary yeah, yeah, behind a, it. Yeah, visionary guy who sort of had this idea of creating massive capacity in computing by training several number of PhDs. And so he brought in John. He kept bringing experts from out. His, his theory was really simple, bringing all the experts so they can build capacity locally. Part of it was this. You know, John came, and it was a good start. Yeah, so John Quinn at the time, had, he just finished his PhD with Chris Williams and, and, in machine learning. But yeah. the, um, Barry Mieber also got an entirely new building constructed for the department as well. I just find that so impressive. That he did. That he did. He was a very dynamic man. Yeah, he... Got this huge six-floor building in computing. It was something no one in the university had done. So the university was, you know, yeah, buildings are normally structured and they're built by the university. But he so almost single-handedly sort of lifted this building out of a huge project. It's quite impressive. The challenge is that the traditional universities in Africa tend to be quite stuck in their ways. They have stuff that have been around for a long time, just like all universities, but you know, perhaps more extreme here. And that means that some of the larger universities are harder to sort of move in new directions. But the fact that the computer science department was new, that it wasn't there when you were an undergraduate, and you know, has meant that Makere has the advantage of being the most prestigious university in Uganda, but also very dynamic in its thinking around computer science, I feel, as an outsider. Yeah, I mean, I think it was really a stroke of genius that Brian Rebo was there because he was a young man and he had done computing in, in Norway, I think. And when he came back, you know, he had so much energy that he built this young faculty. It was a, still the youngest faculty uh, the youngest school right now in Makere University. And so it was just dynamic and uh, he, he sort of moved the needle from this old, you know, old institution and pushed it in a new direction with computing. And so this, this became phenomenal of how we grew the computing field in Uganda. But that was the thing. He had a lot of energy and the field was ripe and Makere was, was the place to sort of push this thing. Yeah. And that, in some sense, has also becoming the engine for what's driving data science Africa now because those are providing the foundations that are allowing the inspiration to shift locally to other institutions that can see what can be achieved, I think. Yeah, we've provided uh, a lot of examples. I mean, right now the School of Computing has, it's not a big number, but it's the biggest in East Africa, you know, 25 PhD holders in computing. And this has sort of driven a lot of research. And we've had sort of other universities, like private universities, like Kampala International University, Utam, sort of pick a leaf from this and form research groups in artificial intelligence, this, you know, one small area of impact there. But, I mean, there's been a lot of impact from Macquarie, especially in computing, to other universities. So particularly sure. AI. Particularly AI, yeah. Um, and machine learning. And, and you've been a significant part of that. So in terms of, I mean, tell us about your PhD work, because, you know, I think it's ongoing, that project, but I think it's a really nice example. Right. So the aim was to sort of use local data sets to do a lot of inference and prediction mainly. So we started out looking at uh, data, 
So all these statistics collected from the country and trying to predict things like cholera. And then over time, this built up into, what about unique data sets like images for crop disease analysis? And this sort of a huge part of the PhD, it was new data, it was new sort of inference, it was a very interesting problem, very uh, strong problem. We had very good collaborators in the agriculture space. And so we started building these models to do surveillance, crop surveillance, particularly cassava, so surveillance of disease and automated prediction uh, or diagnosis of disease in the field. So again, cassava is interesting. So my understanding of cassava, it's, it's not widely eaten in Uganda. It's very popular in West Africa. But um, it's an important crop because it survives drought. So um, a lot of people have cassava planted, and if there's problems with, let's uh, then you go to the cassava. It's a staple. It's a starchy root vegetable, and you go to the cassava as a sort of backup option. So it's it's something that the country is very sensitive to, if things go wrong. I mean, is that correct? Yeah, it's a key food security crop, cassava. So it's a, it's a very important crop. And it's a, it has a unique characteristic that is sort of grown by sort of smallholder farmers. So this is a crop they'll definitely grow in combination with other crops because of that. So once things go bad, this is the crop they're going to go to. And now, you know, the government is sort of encouraging people to build other, you know, uh, products from it. So they don't have to wait until things are bad, but they can build some other products and sort of improve their livelihoods through this, this crop. This is a very, very serious crop. Your PhD, what, what years was it across again? It was About 2007 I started the PhD. So the other interesting thing about that era, and we heard speaking to Dina, of course, the mobile phone revolution was really coming through in force at this period. And I think that that's the sort of thing you started picking up on. I guess at the time, I mean, people didn't realize the extent to which smartphones... You can get a $60 smartphone now, basically, can't you? You can, um, you can. A highly functional Android smartphone and... That's a total game changer for, for your sort of work, right? Yeah, that was a brilliant game changer. And so from my previous work, so my previous work was sort of uh, before this, so the innovative ICT thing in, in health were using PDAs. And this was a very complicated, well, not complicated tool, but it was tricky because you had to sort of maintain this tool. It was very hard because people had to charge and we had to get solar so PDAs like pocket PC things, the, HP things and things the, like that, yeah? Exactly. So when the phone started picking up, I mean, the phone was phenomenal because... One of the key things about the phone is you sort of don't have to maintain the equipment. You don't have mm. to charge it. You don't have to take care of the charging because the people automatically take care of this for you. So things like theft, charging, maintenance, and this sort of thing. So it was a brilliant tool to leverage sort of technology over. And this was a game changer. So we started fashioning these things like how do you diagnose crops in the field? Of course, you have a mobile phone. Farmers started getting mobile phones. This was technology that we, you, you know, we started thinking that line and we sort of followed that line thought um, as, the, you know, as the phone becomes ubiquitous, more or less. So they all, I remember another part of this story that the old crop surveys, they would take, is it three months in the field of driving around and then return the department, the Ministry of Agriculture, and then compile the data? Yeah, I mean, they, they, they sort of collected these surveillance maps and the idea was to have some idea of the, the spread of disease or state of disease and state of health of crops in the country. But then from the time they collected this data on paper by sort of driving along drivable paths and sort of doing this random survey, 
it was almost six, eight months when they produced a map. And by then, you know, they couldn't do much in terms of interventions. And then they sort of had to go back after three months after that. So it was, it was a big problem and something which we immediately saw we could solve with the, a mobile phone uh, very quickly. But then you went beyond that. This is the thing I love about the AI group. I mean, not just satisfied with writing an app where people count the number of yellow leaves or whatever. And the whitefly work is, is kind of impressive and state of the art. Right, and the white fly work we're doing is sort of counting white flies on a leaf, and they can be in the order of several hundreds on a leaf. So the white fly are a vector for a lot of crop disease. Correct. And this sort of came by accident because, so the first time we interfaced with the farmers, with the agricultural organization in Uganda, we had this automated sort of diagnosis up on the phone, and we thought this was really cool tech. And we, we go and present this to them. And they look at it and they're like, yeah, okay, that, that's really good. But, you know, there's a really, really nagging problem we have. And, and so they say, you know, we need to count these white flies. And we have to do it manually right now. So it's an infuriating task. So they have to count five leaves per plant. And they have to do 30 plants per plot. And, you know, if the order of magnitude of white flies on leaf is in the hundreds, then by the time someone does one garden alone, they are, they're almost running mad. And they have to do this very early in the morning. So the white fly thing came almost naturally, and you know it was just welcomed. You know, they, this was a key problem they needed sorted. This is interesting with the challenge of deploying the technology in the field, and therefore the importance of talking to people. You, you envisage something in the lab, wherever you are, you envisage a solution, and then you get there, and they're like, "Yeah, okay, but this is the real pain point." Yeah, yeah. I mean, sitting in our lab, we thought, "Wow, taking images and doing." automated diagnosis, this, this, is, this is going to blow their minds. And, you know, they, I mean, it did, but then the, the white fly thing was just a problem that was pressing them and they just needed to get that solved. Over, over time, we've sort of learned by, you know, working with the organization there that, you know, a lot of talking goes into getting the tech adopted. Unbelievable how you have to build the relationship. And it's been a very strong, strong revelation to us, you know, because, you know, Coming from the tech side, you're, you're used to just sitting in the lab and getting a problem solved, looking at the accuracy. But the fact that you sort of have to go and talk to the, the actual farmers, talk to the people who use the evangelize. tech. Evangelize. Evangelize. Yeah, I think, and then also the issues of deploying on specific hardware. So you presented earlier in the conference. No, in fact, Martin was presenting your work, wasn't he? And uh, people asked about the algorithm and they're using Viola Jones. It's kind of exciting. I didn't know you were using Viola Jones, which is this face detection algorithm, famous face detection, one of the first successes of machine learning. Yeah. So it was deployed on cameras very widely for face detection. And, but you, it's, sort of just, it's amazing. It just circles all. I mean, and you can find about it online. Actually, if you search for the AI group at McCary, you can see these projects and see what it's doing. It just circles all the white fly, gives an extremely quick count. Yeah, yeah, but it, yeah, by the time we started deploying this, that was the state of the art, I think, more or less. And but it'll go on any hardware. That's the beauty yeah, of it. Yeah, that's the beauty. That's the beauty. You just have changed, you know. The sixty-dollar phones don't have the best processors in them. Yeah, they don't. And I mean, it's a really good, you know, technique to do this sort of thing, especially even iterating through different accuracy you know, sort of cascades or these different files you have to put on the phone and make sure it can sort of run this thing in an accurate manner. So I'm curious, I remember early days, I think we were using OpenCV on, is that right? Right. So that's a really great tool. I mean, has that been changing? Have you seen changes? With sort of the, is the deep learning revolution affecting things sort of here in the field in Africa as much as it is elsewhere? Because Viola Jones clearly was the right choice, probably still is the right choice, but are there other areas where you see that coming through? I mean, we're also transitioning to deep learning, you know. So the OpenCV, yeah, we use OpenCV and we still use it quite a bit. 
uh, particularly because it had all these sort of libraries you could put on the Android phone. But you know, deep learning now with TensorFlow, you can sort of deploy quickly on the phone. We're sort of moving in that direction right now. The same reasons that everyone's moving in that direction. You have better accuracy, you have ease of deployment right now on the phone. So it's quite the thing. Yeah. yeah. I just pulled you out of the Internet of Things session in uh, Data Science Africa. That's another interesting area. How do you see that coming into these projects? Because on the one hand, it's like, well, they've got phones. We can just do this stuff. Is this a return to a bit more what you were talking about in the sort of health analytics period where you're going to have some exclusive hardware? And and where do you see that acting and and where do you see the new challenges being? So the challenge, I think I see opportunities for this Internet of Things. A key challenge is sort of getting good sensors deployed where we can pick good data. In agriculture, that's sort of on the farms, on the, on the fields where the farmers are. And I think this, the IoT thing is really, I think that, that's, that would be the way to do it. Because the mobile phone has sort of been our sensor uh, for a long time. And for some of the projects we are doing, like surveillance, we rely on the farmer to sort of go and take an image, for example, or take some data from the field. But, you know, if we have a very cheap sensor, which can be powered, you know, by a very small battery for a very long time, this is something that can be quickly deployed. In the yeah, field. I mean, I thought that was one of the things that Jan's session on, you know, he's talking about this nuclear board that uh, is a development board that people are using, and... Uh, I can't remember, it was a six-year battery life on, from a AA battery on, on this thing under certain operating conditions, obviously. Yeah. And, and that's with an ability to connect either to a mobile phone or something else um, on occasion, so to be woken up. It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? Yeah, it is, it is. I mean, yeah, I, I, mean, I, I kept thinking of sort of the applications. I mean, one of the things you talked about was this 10-kilometer range short communication with these sensors that can sort of last for six years on one A you know, double A battery. And so that sense is like placed across field, double A battery, 10 kilometer range for communication amongst the sensor network. Yeah, exactly. Interesting challenges that I think were brought up in one of the questions. Afrosoft, the guy from Afrosoft, who I haven't had a chance to speak to in detail yet, but he was, this leads to challenges with data again, doesn't it? And then it, it all comes back to how you pull all this data in and process. And so it feels like, you know, the attendees are loving the internet of things session it's like the most popular session everyone's building uh, temperature sensors moisture sensors and and as i think you were saying on the walk across they all now want to do projects on it yeah and we're going to get ourselves in a data mess aren't we I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean they're putting sensors in their mouths and they you know all sorts of things to see they actually work it's quite interesting yeah I think the exposure is going to be amazing. I mean, I sort of see the next Data Science Africa workshop, people coming with all sorts of projects or mm. experience from projects I've done from sort of the IoT stuff they're learning right now. And it, yeah. I'd love to move to getting the analysis thing because I just get the sense, looking at the way people are responding, they're going to do that. They're going to do that on their own. You know, like they're, they're like kids with toys. They've yeah. been shown a toy. You know, these things cost 20 bucks and they're all going to want more of the toy. But then probably we need to think a little bit ahead a bit and what skill sets they need that perhaps aren't the, the glittery thing. And maybe next year doing sessions around how to upload and analyze that data, how to do the data management from, well from the ground up. Because you know that people get in themselves in a mess because they, they'll deploy the sensors and they won't have the data management side in, in order, which I, I'm imagining is probably a big issue, I mean, for uh, the Cassava work. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, deployment alone is quite a big deal. I mean, even just deploying the sensors. I mean, right now yeah. we can sort of test them in a lab. 
but you know, deploying them and reliably getting the data and sort of maintaining that and doing the analytics, I think that's going to be... But I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a key step that they sort of get exposed the first time. So I think next, next round, definitely, we should do more analytics on the data. Be a good experience to see what they have sort of done with the data mm. or how they've deployed them. Well, actually, I'm really curious about the workshop next couple of days because... I'm suspecting to see advances in the sort of things people are getting up to already. So we're teaching this to the students, basically, but then we're going to see the experts coming in from different places over the next few days, and and we'll start getting a sense of the imaginative things people have got up to in the field. Yeah, it's a good mix. I mean, there's some groups which are going to present, which are sort of startup groups. Uh, You know, some of them came last year. There's a there's a group here that sort of came last year. They sort of did something with with the the cassava data we had. They won an award with MTN Uganda, so they are sort of funding this startup that they're going to have. So it's quite interesting to see that you know they can actually take the lessons, get some projects done, take them to some sort of scale. Now they're going to form some startup. And the startup culture is a really interesting thing because. In some sense, that's, that's the obvious next step. I mean, you don't want to rely on universities to be delivering all this stuff. It doesn't scale, you yeah. know, in that sense. You can't address all the applications. You want these to be exemplars that inspire people, inspire students to go out there in the real world. How do you think that's developing in um, Kampala in particular? I mean, it's developing quite well. I mean, we've, we've got a lot of interest sort of in the AI and data science lab right now. Students coming in and wanting to do projects that they could sort of take to the field and form companies. So the fact that there's uh, less employment sort of makes people more innovative. Yeah. And so they are, they're sort of looking for all ways. And I think this, this culture of sort of using their computing skills to build these startups is, is growing. Kampala is growing. There are many startups, like the data John showed with the, the Border Borders, this group that came out of... Uh, so Border Borders, they're the motorbike taxis. That, the motorbike. Uh, um, are, well, the major way of getting around Kampala, if you're brave. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if you're in Kampala and you stay more than a week, you know, then you have enough courage to take them. Yeah, so the, these guys, they, they came out of our college and they sort of uh, uh, touched these sensors on the border borders and they're, they're actually making a lot of money out of it. So they sort of track theft of borders. Ah, yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's a, yeah. it's It's done. Most of the borders are rented out to the buyer and then they have to pay back. So if it gets stolen midway, then it's a big problem. So the, mm. these border border guys sort of come and uh, register on this system, pay some small token fee per month. And that's, that's a lot of the themes of the projects that most interest me are you're looking at people who are on the edge in terms of their work, that if anything goes wrong, borders stolen, they, they have an accident, they have an injury or anything like this. They just get pushed over into a precipice. Anything that can help with that is so massively leveraged. I mean, it really makes a big difference. Yeah, it does, it does. I mean, even, even well, I guess even the smaller farmers sort of try and uh, do all the work they're doing for, you know, they need, they need quick diagnosis in the field because, you know, if the guy doesn't see the disease and sort of goes on, then the crop dies. And, is... and, and yeah, coming back to that, so the, the data you have is feeding spatial models. Then, then you can preemptively predict where the disease is moving to next. You, you advise to change. It's typical a, a breed change advice. It's, it's not typically pesticides, is it, in this case? So the things that move the day, you know, the disease most are sort of people planting the wrong sort of variety. Mm. 
I see you, you, you definitely want to make sure that doing the, the plant the right variety first of all. And, then and is that data you can get? Can you classify the variety when your data is coming in? So that's data that the National uh, Agriculture Organization wants, the sort of the body in, in Uganda that's uh, looking at this. So we've been collecting a lot of data on, um, on leaf, leaf data, leaf images. And you know, from this, you can then get the spatial understanding of disease in the country. And they've sort of been telling us we need to get the, the variety data. So the variety data is very complex. That, that's just another problem we've sort of been thinking about. So the farmers down there do not know which varieties they have. And the, the people up here also do not know exactly which varieties are being grown down. So it's a, we've, we've sort of thought about it as an image a computer vision problem. Mm. So we're trying to sort of characterize it and see if we can get that done as well. But it's something which is definitely on the agenda of the, of the agriculture organization in Uganda. So what next? What, what, what do you see happening? I mean, these projects are getting mature. They're providing such inspiration for so many people here. I mean, I was saying, Dina was saying, oh, it's great to have, you know, Neil and Ralph here. And I, I think, yeah, well, you know, I, I love being here too. But in some sense, it's not relatable to people. That, I mean, I have all these things I could do and, and go out and deploy. People can't relate to that. But they can relate to you growing up in the same environment and being successful and delivering solutions. I think that's far more inspiring. I find it enormously inspiring because the challenges were actually that much greater. I mean, talking to like Shira about just trying to get in a PhD. And I, I know how universities react. You know, you get emails from Africa. Oh, I want to do a PhD. Yeah, yeah, whatever. All those challenges. But people seeing that it can be done. And, and the Netherlands has been really great on this. Groningen, isn't it? You yeah, did your PhD. And there's an ongoing program there with Michael Beale and... Uh, well-qualified PhDs is, is what feeds the system, isn't it? Yeah, it is, it is. I mean, looking at all the... I mean, that was a very significant project that uh, we sort of talked about earlier on, sort of having barrier get all these PhDs, and you put them in one fuck-out, you know, even something's going to happen, you know, yeah, something's yeah. going to happen. And, and it also helps, you know, to, to, to cultivate these local solutions, as you said. Awesome. Yeah. It's very important. Uh, there's also a micro-local level. So while we are in Kampala, you know, even when we go down to, to the field, to the rural areas, sort of interact with the farmers, we also have to get another level of sort of farmer groups, or key farmers, model farmers, that have to sort of deploy the solution downwards. So it's a whole cascade of, you know, making sure the context is right. That, you know. The same reasons. Like, it's all the same thing, isn't it? It's like, you know, the, the farmer can't relate to the guy at Makera University that yeah. has made an app. I mean, it, so he has to have a trusted friend that says, oh, this is great, and this is how you do it, and this is what makes it work. And, and then they can relate to that, right? Yeah. I mean, we've found that building relationships is a big, big part of sort of making sure tech is delivered downwards. So what we're doing right now, one of the systems we're doing right now is sort of this ad hoc surveillance. So getting farmers and people down in the, in the rural areas to send up data, send images actually, because that's the simplest way they can sort of collect data. They don't need much. They basically take an image. It sort of classifies on the phone. Uh, if they're a farmer, you know, maybe this disease, and then the image goes up. And then from this, you can sort of build spatial models. And we're getting a lot of... Um, just understanding the social dynamics of who sends data, how much they send, mm. what are the incentives to sort of engage in this system. It's, uh, it's another, there's so many areas where Africa is ahead. And, and the incentivization structure for data acquisition in these domains, the thinking here is so much further ahead. I also, mean, Kudu is, is one I often think of. And uh, the, I, think I mentioned it in a previous interview, John's, uh, the project John was working on, on uh, distributing, you know, getting bids in for maize on trucks before the trucks are delivered. 
these incentivization structures to get people either involved or, you know, do you give them money or do you give them benefits? And I know you've looked at that an enormous amount. And also the right farmers, because certain farmers will engage, particularly at a certain age, I suspect, and yeah. then, but then you miss vast areas. It's been a, so we've done it for sort of one year and it's been quite a, a learning experience. So all things matter, so age, gender, we've tried all sorts of incentives, so the recognition, um, sending them small data airtime. We've tried uh, small token micropayments to sort of get them to send the data. We've tried, you know, sort of uh, Eastern Christmas bonanzas, you know, send data and you, you know, and everything. And, you know, you sort of get this very um, uh, mixed sort of way in which they respond to these incentives. It's been quite uh, an experiment and we want to actually grow this and sort of try with the youth groups. So youth, the youth are one of the big sort of bodies in, 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 in Uganda that is a very hard group to sort of peg down. So they, because we have majority of the people are sort of in the youth bracket right now. And so there's been a lot of talk from the government to sort of engage these people. And we, we kept thinking, you know, I mean, these would be the guys who... He has a mobile phone. He can sort of move around. A mobile phone and a bicycle. And a bicycle, and he can take a, you know take photos as he moves around. They look like a, a key sort of ally, and want to try this out. Want to see if they can actually do this, and we can collect some you know data that we can that makes sense for surveillance. It'd be really great. Because it used to be just the bicycle. I'm just thinking about that. It used to be like, if you had the bicycle, that was it. You were in, you could take... I mean, people use their bikes for extraordinary things. But now it is. It's kind of like the mobile phone plus the bicycle, and you're like a little information gathering. Yeah, 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 bicycle and mobile phone. It used to be bicycle and radio now. Yeah, bicycle and radio. Stroke radio, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are little things. For example, you have to give them a phone with a radio. Mm. That's important. So, of course, John was at Bulgaria, right? Now he's moved on to the Pulse Lab, but that's opened up a lot of opportunities around access to data and things like that. Yeah, it has been really, really great. I mean, the UN Pulse Lab, of course, with all the connections and the ability to sort of reach, uh, especially the government data. Government data. Yeah, government They're very data. close to the Department of Health. They're a trusted organization um, by a lot of governments. Yeah, it's been a little... And they can also... The other thing they do, which is so important, is that they can take a solution that's been deployed in one country and they can transfer it very easily. Um, certainly uh, around, for example, health data, which I worked with John on for a period where we couldn't get access and it wasn't working. As soon as he moved into Global Pulse, then, uh, then that started working. And, and I think the intention is to ship that out beyond Uganda as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I but, mean, yeah, the us have benefited quite a bit. I mean, we've also for a while been trying to get that health data and you know with the, with the pulse lab it's been because you're now sub, they're subcontracting quite subcontract- a lot to the AI yeah, yeah, yeah. which I just love because it just feels like a robust system and one of the things that fascinates me about Kampala when I first went is John described and everyone and, and Martin and probably you you have all these interests beyond just the academic role and Shira was saying oh, I've got a small holding now I've got a farm everyone diversifies because in uncertainty you need to be diverse you need to have a robust network and building these sort of little systems I think it's an African way of doing it it's about contacts it's about it's, it's something that will be robust things will go wrong we know things can be turbulent but, but hopefully all this uh, survives those moments Right, right. You have to have a side hustle. That's the that's always the thing in Kampala. So it uh, it's been good. I mean, having a side hustle, which is a data science project, that's fantastic. So 
you know, the UN Global Power Lab has really been good at that. So creating these opportunities, you know, transferring, contracting work down to the lab, it's quite good. I mean, you also get an exposure from, uh, not only from the academic side of things, but, you know, you have um, a, a scale out you have to do, you have to scale out certain projects, you have to build certain visualizations or do yeah, processing yeah, yeah. data. So. You, you bring good. data to the decision makers and that's exactly. you take it from the farmers and you bring it to the decision makers i mean exactly. and, and that's a whole nother set of problems with many similarities very 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 similarities yeah <laughs> one's a decision maker one's a farmer but the, the the way you address it is the same yeah exactly the same yeah so yeah, yeah. but it's been good to have the connections yeah to have the connections i think that's that's the and of course through the data you know the Data Science Africa. Now we're having connections with, uh, with, with for example, Dekut with Shira. Yeah, I'm yeah. going to visit him, I think, later in the year. Um, then the students who have been sort of what, coming from Nelson Mandela to visit our lab and sort of yeah. stay there and do stuff. So it's connections and uh, making them regional. That's going to be the, the play. Ernest Mbaze of Makere University in Kampala. And it was just fascinating to hear him talk about what he's working on these days. As I said uh, before Dina's interview, I met Ernest with John in Dagstuhl. And, I mean, the work he's doing is just extraordinary. One of the things I loved about Ernest's interview is, you know, he goes out into the field, he talks to the farmers, and then he goes back and he talks to decision makers in the Ministry of Agriculture. I love the duality of that. You have to get in the mindset of both. The skill set mm-hmm. you need to do that is the same, but he also has to do the skill set of building the thing in between. So few people are talking to customers, and, and you know, the point he was making around what they decided to build before they went out to the farm, right. and then what they decided to build after they went out to the farm, that is so important. Yeah. What you, you believe that you need to do uh, sitting inside one place is very different from what is actually required in the field. And I think that that's why it's so important that we've got teams like Ernest's deploying these solutions on site. Because, you know, to be frank, I've heard it said that the, the way to build a successful app is to write an app that does something your mother used to do used for to you. Used to do for you, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the things that your mother used to do for you, that may also be true in Kampala. But the things your mother may have done for you in Kampala would be very different very from different the things that they do in San Francisco, in, which is yeah. like drive you around or, you know, book your dinner reservation or whatever else. The, the problem sets are different. And, you know... It just does not work to sort of sit there without talking to people on the ground. You know, even for Ernest, who had been in Kampala, you know, who's grown up there his entire life, did his PhD in the Netherlands, it doesn't work for him to decide what a farmer in Kampala needs or what an agricultural inspector needs. He actually has to go out there and speak to them. And that's a repeated pattern. That's a repeated pattern across so many applications. If you want to do something successfully, understand the domain first and the machine Mm -hmm. learning second. Uh, It's probably heresy for talking machines <laughs> but it's well, something i kind of believe well how are you going to approach the data clearly if you don't have some idea of how it was collected or what was important or why those decisions were made it seems, you can't it build seems your like model. right yeah. you can't yeah there's this wonderful quote from george box the original one is all models are wrong but some are useful which is a bit <laughs> overused but in the same paper, there's this wonderful quote. I, I can't remember the precise form of it. It's important to be worried about the nature in which it's wrong. You shouldn't worry about mice when there are tigers abroad, meaning 
don't worry about the minutiae of why your model's wrong when it's wrong in some major way. Now, to understand the difference between a mice and tiger, you actually have to go into the field and look at the damn things right. and what they can do. That, that quote is super important in modeling. That's it from a statistics point of view, but it applies equally to anyone doing data science or machine learning. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's it for us on this episode of Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode.